Uh, this morning, we want to look at Luke chapter number five. I'll begin reading in verse number 33. Luke 5, verse 33, simply declares, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, so, so, that, so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when, you, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of new garment and puts it in, on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And the one who puts new wine into, into old wineskins, if he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Let me pray for us quickly. I want to share from a very simple uh, subject title this morning. We want to talk about divine differences, divine differences. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, the privilege that you give us uh, to be a community of faith. Uh, Lord, it is not by coincidence that you called us to be together. God, even before the foundations of the earth, God, you knew that at this moment we would be together. God, you knew that we would need to hear from you. You knew that we would have circumstances and situations that would desire to pull us away from you. God, but it's your desire to pull us close to you. God, even in these moments of prayer, even in these moments of study, God, I pray that this would be an opportunity where you are worshipped, God, but also an opportunity, God, where we enjoy your presence. God, I thank you for my time of preparation. Um, I even thank you for my time of prayer leading up to this service. God, but what we need more so than anything else is your presence. And God, I thank you that you promised us, God, where two or three are gathered together. God, you're with us. God, so we can celebrate that you're with us this morning. God, help us to see clearly, God, the aspects of this passage that apply to our lives and the aspects of this passage that can literally transform our lives. God, help us to see that as a reality this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen. Uh, the last time we were together, we focused on an invitation. Jesus extends an invitation to a man, and I love the fact that Jesus extends an invitation to a man because in, in, in extending that invitation to the man, we have a picture of an invitation that Jesus extends to mankind. To really appreciate the passage of Scripture, we had to consider that the invitation was given to a man named Levi. Levi was not some ordinary man. Levi was actually a tax collector, meaning that he would have been one of the most hated men in the culture. Uh, just in case you missed the message from last week, tax collectors were hated for two specific reasons. Number one, they were hated because they extorted people. They robbed people. They took advantage of people. They would get over people every time they had an opportunity to. So it makes sense that they would be hated. But secondly, there was a spiritual reason why most tax collectors were hated in the culture. The process of becoming a tax collector was very similar to the, to the process of beginning a small business. A successful 
uh, business franchises are bought uh, by people who are willing to make an investment. And in, con- in the context, uh, to become a tax collector, to have a booth to receive taxes, one would have to pay a huge amount of money to become a tax collector. To get that amount of money, usually the people would sell a piece of property, and we can conclude that to sell property uh, to start a business is not a bad thing. But when we consider that the Jews would sell spiritual property, they would sell part of their spiritual inheritance to get something from God. When we see it from that perspective, we see that selling the property was not a good thing. They literally sold part of God's promise. They literally sold a piece of property that was connected to God's covenant. The land that God had promised them spoke to their spiritual identity. So to sell the property was essentially like forgetting who God called them to be. To sell the piece of property was like forgetting their identity. To sell the piece of property would be like spiritual treason. It would have been like betrayal to God. It would have been like betrayal to the family of God. So to sell the tangible land was an example of the people relying on their ability versus relying on God's ability. To sell the piece of property was like them, uh, uh, well, it, it was like an example of them doing things their way versus doing things God's way. To sell the property was like them having their will be done rather than allowing God's will to be done. So when we see it from that perspective, we can understand why tax collectors were some of the most hated people in the culture. And we see that uh, in the passage, Jesus specifically invites a tax collector, one who was despised by people, to follow him. And in inviting uh, one who was despised by people to follow him, Jesus grew in criticism and hatred because he was willing to love people who the culture said should not be loved. When Jesus met the man, he did not fuss at the man. He loved the man. He did not yell at the man. He spoke truth to the man. He was more concerned about connecting with the man than actually condemning the man. And when Jesus invited the man to follow him, essentially what Jesus was doing was Jesus was reminding the man that he was greater than what he had become. I want to say that again. Last week, the sermon was very impactful for me personally because the passage reminds me that it's easy for us to be comfortable not pursuing God's best for our life. When you think about the issue of him being a tax collector, it would have meant that to be a tax collector meant that he was very well known. To be a tax collector meant that he would have been uh, very wealthy. To be a tax collector meant that he he could have had great influence, great power. To be a tax collector meant that he had a significant role in the community, but God created him for more. He had money, but God created him for more. He had influence, but God created him for more. He had a good name, but God created him for more. And from the sermon last week, I was challenged because the more I look at my life and the more I look at the lives of our community and the lives of most Christians, many of us, and when I say us, I'm specifically talking about myself, many of us have gotten comfortable not being where God desires for us to be. There are many of us who can say this morning, Preacher, I'm better than I used to be. Preacher, I'm more patient than I used to be. Preacher, 
I'm more kind. I don't drink as much. I don't cuss as much. Not just curse. I don't cuss like I used to. I'm better than my friends. I'm better than my family. And I want you to hear me clearly this morning. Good is not good enough when God expects better. I want to say that to all of us. This is for me. Good is not good enough when God expects better from me. When I say God reminds us that we are more than we have become, I'm not speaking about anything tangible. I'm not talking about a house or a car or a particular ring on your finger. When I speak about God's uh, God having greater for you, I'm speaking about your purpose. I'm speaking about you being who God created you to be. I'm speaking about you knowing God, and I'm speaking about you helping other people know God. I'm speaking about you leaving a spiritual legacy. I'm speaking about you living in such a way that those who come after you will be able to point back to you and say, I saw Grandma Lori reading her Bible. I saw Grandma Avita serving and praying. I saw Granddaddy Larry and Grandma Betty laying hands and praying. I saw Uncle Fernando and Uncle Sean having a Bible study. I saw Cousin Jay and Aunt Suzanne feeding the homeless. I saw uh, Auntie Deborah and Uncle Gillespie serving and sending kids to college. I saw Grandma Georgianne having a discipleship meeting with women. I hope and pray that we're living in such a way where those who are around us are seeing how we're living and that it's having an impact on other people. The question that we must consider is, what kind of legacy will we leave? I know y'all feel like, man, this dude is broken record lately. I hope I'm a broken record on this point. I hope and pray that we are all asking the tough questions considering what kind of legacy we're leaving. I'm speaking about taking the things that we're hearing, taking the things that we're learning, and we're committing to brothers and sisters who will be able to preach and teach others also. When I say God wants more, I'm saying that the invitation to follow Jesus is a, is a lifestyle where we are growing more like Christ, where we are leaving what's comfortable, where we are abandoning things that make sense. And when you look at the invitation that Jesus extends to Levi, this is the exact same invitation that Jesus extends to us. It's hard for us to understand why people would hate Jesus. Now, we can understand why people would hate the tax collector. He would take advantage of people. He forfeited his promise. But why in the world would so many people hate Jesus? I mean, we love Jesus. We identify with Jesus. We celebrate Jesus. Like, how in the world could so many people not accept and follow Jesus? It's hard for us to understand the hatred and the animosity that Jesus, that, that Jesus had because we live in a time where we are so far removed from the hatred that Jesus experienced. Uh, on this past week, we celebrated uh, the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. And all over this country and really all over the world, people took time to celebrate uh, one of the most influential Americans that has ever lived. Uh, Dr. King, hands down, was one of the most beloved Americans that ever lived. Uh, in 2020, you are hard-pressed to find anyone who would publicly disagree with Dr. King. I say that publicly. There's a lot of people who would disagree with him in private, but publicly, most people would not have anything negative to say about Dr. King. I want you to pause for a minute. I want you to listen to a 1968 Harris poll. In 1968, though we celebrated his life on last Monday, 
1968, the year he died, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a 75% disapproval rating in America. 75% of people who were polled in 1968 said that they had an issue with his life. I want you to take a moment and listen to the testimonies of people who lived when Dr. King died. Enda McDonald from Houston says, as a young white woman living in the South, when Dr. King was assassinated, I saw glee, I saw satisfaction. Martha Asbury from Memphis Reflection says, I was a freshman, um, I was in the FAMU sorority suite at Memphis State. When I heard about Dr. King's death on the radio, some girls walked around in the room laughing and joking about it. I can remember cars honking in general and everybody celebrating his death. Unfortunately, I was too stupid and too gutless to speak up. Randy Hurst from Orange County, New York says, I was just out of the Navy in 1968 and a freshman in college. As a white male who served with many African-American men who were at war with me, I felt ashamed of my country. I felt disgrace at the time of his death because so many people hated him. Even in the 60s, there were clergy who absolutely were against Dr. King. There was a several group of pastors who called him a troublemaker. There were several a group of pastors who said he was too committed to social justice. And while he was boycotting in 1963, a group of clergy wrote a letter to him saying, you need to stop what you're doing. You need to cease and desist. What you are doing is wrong. And Dr. King responded by writing a letter from a Birmingham jail. That's what we refer to it today. I want you to hear a part of the letter. This is just the first two paragraphs. It says, My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable. I think I should give you the reason for my being in Birmingham, since you have been influenced by so many arguments of outsiders coming in. I have the honor of ser serving as the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization operating in, in, other, in every southern state. It is headquartered in Atlanta. We have some 85 affiliate organizations all across the South. Several months ago, our local affiliate here in Birmingham invited us to be uh, engaged in a nonviolent direct action program, and we seemed like it was necessary. But more specifically, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried what thus saith the Lord far beyond their boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left the village of Tarsus, and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the world, so I am compelled to carry the gospel beyond my own home. Like Paul, I must consistently respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Dr. King was hated because he messed up the apple cart. He was hated because he interrupted a way of life. He was hated because he interrupted a way of thinking. He was killed because people did not understand why he would mess up their good thing. Things were good. Like, why are you making trouble? Why are you messing things up? And because he was willing to mess things up, he lost his life. I'm going to pause for a second and say this. I am not at all 
elevating Dr. King to the status of Jesus. Please do not hear me say that this morning. But if we can understand how many years later people want to celebrate Dr. King's legacy and while he was living, while he was operating, while he was doing ministry on the earth, people hated him. Should we not also be able to understand how now 2,000 years later we want to celebrate Jesus, we want to have Jesus as a homeboy t-shirt, we want to celebrate him through song and not recognize that while Jesus was living, Jesus was hated. While Jesus was living, Jesus was despised. While Jesus was living, he was not the popular figure that we think he is today. While Jesus was living, he was despised because he messed up the apple cart. He was despised because he gave a reminder that God is on the side of the oppressed. He gave a tangible example of God loving those who are imperfect. And it, it, is, it is challenging to us because we are here today and we want to think that because we're in church and because we're not out sinning, because we're not out doing anything bad, because we're good people, we're good with God. When in reality, the only thing that makes us good with God is Jesus. The only thing that puts us in right relationship with God is a relationship with his Savior. When Jesus shares in the text, Jesus is giving us some divine differences between what the Pharisees were pursuing versus what he was offering. There are three things in particular that we see different in terms of what Jesus offered and what the people pursued. The first thing we see is the difference between pain and pleasure. Verse 33 says, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. For the, for the Pharisees, the life of faith was simply defined by focusing on what they don't do. They're saying, here is what we don't do. We don't party with sinners. We don't drink with sinners. We don't associate with imperfect people. We don't do this and we don't do that. For them, unfortunately, the life of faith had been reduced to what they do not do. And when I consider the Pharisees and their reaction to the text, I am reminded that many of us operate the very same way today. Many of us in our lives spiritually have been reduced to what we don't do. I don't do the really bad sins. I don't kill anybody. I don't rape anybody. I don't abuse anybody. I don't steal money. I don't vote for certain people because of political convictions. I don't go to certain places. And if we are not careful, we can make the whole sum of our Christian life about things we're against rather than understanding that the Christian life is about the things we are for. We need to understand that the Christian life is about what we are pursuing I want to ask you a question this morning. Does your life speak more about what you are against or does your life speak more about what you are for? When you speak, when you post, when you respond to circumstances in your life, what are you for and what are you against? In the text, the people pursued pain rather than pursuing the pleasure in God's presence. In the text, the people were focused on a really good thing. They talked about fasting and prayer. And I want to say this very clearly. Fasting is a healthy thing, but here's the truth. We don't fast to be right with God. We fast because we are right with God and because we want to be closer to God. Fasting for the purpose of being in God's presence is a good thing. Fasting meaning the intentional decision 
to deny my flesh to increase my faith is a good thing. And I want to say this. I'm going to put this out there. We're going to probably do a church fast soon. We're going to probably have to go to two services. We're packed out. We're praying about doing things differently around here. We're going to do a church fast, not to focus on the pain of fasting, but so that we can be in God's presence to hear him more clearly. In the text, fasting should have been about God's presence, but fasting became about the pain. They focus more on the pain than God's presence, and we can focus more on the pain than the things we are called to give up. It's so funny to me. Sometimes you will be around and you'll have honest uh, moments of, of conversation uh, with folks. And, you know, we talk about the realities of Christian life. And a lot of times we want to talk about the things that, that God has called us to give up. We want to talk about the fact that I can't sleep around. We want to talk about the fact that I can't fight somebody. I can't curse somebody out. I can't steal money. We want to talk about the things that God has called us to give up. And on some level, those things cause us pain, and that's a good thing. But rather than focusing on the things that cause us pain, we should be focused on God's presence. We should be focused on the one we get to spend time with. We should be focused on the one who we get to enjoy. And in the text, the Pharisees were so concerned about the pain of fasting that they missed the reality that they had an opportunity to be in God's presence. Here's a, just a very clear application for all of us. In the Christian life, in our life of faith, we've got to, do, we've got to be very careful to not make the means the end. They made the means the end rather than the end remaining the end. Their focus was so much on the fast and their spiritual performance that they missed out on hearing from God. Like we can make Spiritual discipline is the end when those things are simply a means to an end. We can so so focus on church that I'm just checking the box off that I went to church today, but I'm not connecting with people. My heart isn't prepared for a message, and I'm not focused on the application. We can be so concerned and so uh, consumed with the quiet time that we want to just check the box off and say, I spent time with God's word, but I'm not digging deep and allowing God to transform me by his word. I can be so focused on just doing the right thing that I miss out on the reality that God has called me to be transformed in that process. So first, we see the difference between uh, pain and God's presence. But secondly, we see the difference between religion and a relationship. Verse 34 says, and, when, and Jesus said to them, can, uh, can you make a wedding guest a fast while the bridegroom is with them? And the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. You should catch this. Religion focuses on a set of practices, while a relationship focuses on a person. Religion is man-centered. A relationship is God-centered. Religion challenges you to reach a certain standard. A relationship invites you to accept a savior. In the text, Jesus uses an illustration that would have resonated with the Jewish um, folks. A a newly married Jewish couple uh, did not necessarily have a honeymoon, but they had a week-long party. Just think about this for a second. This this should, uh, Brother Stacy, this should warm your heart because you have three girls. (laughs) In that culture, you would have to pay for a week of partying for people. It's a week of food. It's a week of wine. It was a big old party. It was a big festival. It was a, it's a huge celebration that they had to do. 
And while they were in the midst of the celebration, people actually got an excuse, if you were part of the bridal party, to be excused from the religious practices because they were called to focus on the bridegroom. They were called to focus on the celebration that was taking place. What Jesus is saying is, I am the one you should be celebrating. And while I'm with you, I want you to fully celebrate my presence. I want you to fully appreciate the joy that can only come from my presence. Jesus is saying, my presence is reason enough to have a party. Jesus is saying, my presence is reason, reason enough for you to celebrate. Jesus is saying, my presence releases you from the practices of religion because my presence is all about growing in a relationship with God. I want to just ask, how are you growing in your relationship with Jesus? Is it growing? Is it stagnant? Is it healthy? I know all of us have been in a, in a, in a relationship when you don't really want to be in it. You kind of wait until the next relationship comes. Be honest. You get a text message or some of our older members, you get a phone call. From that person, you really don't want to talk to them. You're ignoring them. You rush off the phone quickly. They're getting on your nerves. You're not really engaged in a relationship. You're just kind of buying time in the relationship to something better happens. Is that not how many of us operate with Jesus? That we're more annoyed by conviction? That we're more bothered by the things that he calls us to do? Rather than being annoyed in a relationship, we should enjoy the presence of the one who we are not really worthy to be in a relationship with. We should enjoy his presence, and we should focus on a relationship with God that celebrates the presence of the Lord. When you look at the text, Jesus gives joy, and Jesus gives excitement. Like, when you think about the Christian life, it should not be this boring, mundane uh, life where you are always down, you are always broken, you are always going through, and you have no joy. That is not the relationship that God has for you. And if your relationship is marked by you always being down, always being sad, always being overwhelmed, always being depressed, always being defeated, I'm going to say you don't have a healthy relationship with Jesus. At the very same time, I hope that you don't hear me saying that just because you have a relationship with Jesus, life will be easy. I'm not saying at all that just because you have a relationship with Christ that things are going to come exactly how you want them to come. But when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus and his circumstances were hard, but he still had joy in the midst of all of his circumstances. His circumstances said he had to go to the cross and die, but he still had joy. His circumstances said he had to endure suffering, but he still had joy. His circumstances said that people would betray him. His folks, who, was, who he was closest with, turned their backs on him, but he still had joy. And since Jesus had joy in the midst of his circumstances, so can I. As a Christian, we need to grow up. We need to be stronger in our faith so much so that we have joy in the midst of all of our circumstances and in the midst of all the issues of our life. Does that mean that life is easy? Absolutely not. But it does mean that since God is with me, it does not matter who is against me. It does mean that I can honor God by how I respond to any circumstance and situation in my life. It's not going to always be easy, but I can always have victory because Jesus is present with me. 
one of the issues that I see as a pastor and as a follower of Christ. Like, I want to wait to invest in my relationship with Jesus when things get hard. I want to wait to invest in Jesus when I get knocked on my butt. In reality, before the circumstances get hard and tough, I need to be investing in my relationship with God so I'm not knocked on my butt so I can stay on my feet or at least stay on my knees focused on the Lord. So first, we see the difference between pain and presence. Secondly, we see the difference between religion and relationship. And then lastly, we see the difference between legalism and love. Verse 36 says, and he told them a parable. No one tears a piece of a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says the old is good. The Lord compares this situation to a new garment and new wine. I want you to imagine uh, getting you a, a new piece of clothes. I don't know where you shop at. You may shop at Men's Warehouse. You may shop at Fable 21, Jones of New York, Fashion Nova. I don't know where you shop. Wherever you shop, right? I want you to imagine getting a brand new piece of clothing. And I want you to imagine like ripping the brand new garment together and trying to take something from the, the new garment and trying to patch an old garment. That doesn't make any sense. The Lord is telling us that that does not make sense because you're going to ruin both. In the text, the new wine and the, and the new wineskins and the old garments is a reminder that Jesus has a new covenant to establish for his people. The old garment and the old wineskins represents the old way of worship in Israel. They were a part of the old covenant. But now we see a new covenant was offered in the blood and the body of Jesus. This new wine and this new cloth was so much greater than the old wine and the old cloth, so much so that the two could not mix. You cannot pour Christ into the old wineskins. You cannot put Christ into the old cloth. If you try to, you will lose Christ. Galatians chapter number 5, verse 1 says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage for you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, and you would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And in Galatians, it's addressing a group of people who tried to fit Christ into the old system. They tried to say, we're going to accept Jesus, but we're going to have to still accept this old system of government. You cannot attach Christ to the old system. Christ does not match the old system. And I can hear some people saying like, hold on, T. Are you saying that we should unhinge ourselves from the New Testament? Are you saying that we should unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament? Are you saying that Jesus should not be viewed throughout all the scriptures? Thank you for asking. I want you to go with me <laughs> to Romans 5. I think it's important for us to see this. 
It's important for us to see that Jesus is the, the theme of the entire Bible. Romans 5 says, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16. And the free gift is not the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the man Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification for life for all men and women. Should you hear me clearly say, to appreciate the gospel, we must understand that the old system, the law, was put in place so that we can acknowledge our need for a savior. We don't ever need to unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament because the Old Testament promises that God would send the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The old system, in the old system, each person was flawed because of their sin, but under the new system, we are all flawed because of our sin, but we receive salvation from our sins because of the one sacrifice that happens in Jesus. The new system says there's a sinless Savior who's able to cover all my sins. And now my righteousness is not about what I do. My righteousness is about what Christ possessed. If I try to put the two together, I end up failing. But if I understand that Jesus fulfills the law and establishes a new covenant, I can appreciate the new wine and the new wineskin. I you to consider this as we close. When you think about the passage and you think about what's being communicated here in the text, there are three very specific things that I want to challenge us with today as we get ready to close. When you think about what Jesus is communicating to the group of Pharisees, we first need to understand that we're the Pharisees. We're the church people. Like, the tax collectors are people who would not be here on Sunday. Like, we're the people who Jesus will be speaking to. And when Jesus speaks to the people, he says very clearly... Let the end always be different than the means. There are a lot of things that we do as Christians. We pray, we fast, we read scripture, we memorize scripture, we do great uh, works. Those things are good things, but those things are not the end. And if we are just focused on what we're doing in our works, we're just focused on how many times we go to church, how many quiet times we have, how, many, how long we pray, how many people we bring to church, if we focus on that, we miss out on God's presence. I want you to be focused on coming to church, but I don't want you to be focused on coming to church so much that you miss God's presence. Don't be so focused on the means that you miss the end. Secondly, 
Let us understand the pleasure of pursuing God should always be more impactful than the pain that comes from pursuing God. There's pain in this Christian life. It's hard to follow Jesus. Anybody who tells you it's easy to follow Jesus is either not following Jesus or doesn't understand what it means to follow Jesus. It's painful. Jesus tells us in Luke 9 that we are called to take up our cross and follow him. We're called to endure. That's going to be tough. But as I'm pursuing Jesus, I hope that the pleasure and the joy, Jesus said in Hebrews 12, it's for that joy that is set before me. It was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. And I hope and pray as, as believers, we so live in such a way that you guys are committed to focusing on the joy that is set before you. We have, we have a 545 men's group. I want to invite you if you're willing to come every, every 545 on Tuesday. It's hard to get up. When I see 30-plus men, young, old, black, white, it's for the joy that's set before me that I get up. It's hard to preach a sermon. It's hard to go through a Bible passage. I saw, I saw my guy Brad this week uh, on campus, and um, we were talking about... Um, Talking about the sermon, I think I said, man, I sure want to skip this part, man. It's just not, it's just not rich. Like, I want something good to preach on Sunday, right? It's for the joy that's set before me that we're going to continue to walk through the scriptures. So first, let the end always be different than the means. That's the first point of application. Let the end always be the means. But secondly, I got to focus on the pleasure that God gives me in pursuing him and not just focus on the pain. And lastly, I'm done. Bank, come on up. When we look at the text, we got to remember that the commandments of Scripture must be different than the convictions of Scripture. There's certain things that God commands us to do, and it's without a question. But there are other things that come from your personal convictions. A lot of times, churches fall out and people argue and folks fight because I want to make my personal convictions, your commandments. I can't do that. There are certain things that God has given me convictions about that I cannot do, but I cannot put those convictions on you. But there are certain commandments that God has given all of us, and those are the things that we should be 100% fully committed to.